Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes. We're going to do a second installment today on our objections to Christianity. This one is one of the most popular objections, and it is faith and science. Can faith and science coexist? Can you believe in science? Can you trust the science and also be a person of faith? That is a hot topic, and it's a perennial topic. It just changes, the arguments change from time to time. And I know you're going to talk to us about what are the most common arguments in favor of science versus religion today. Yes, before we get going, I just want to mention we are completely supported by listener giving and reader giving. So we don't do any ads. We don't do any sponsorships. Uh, it, however, I've always left the proviso out there. If Crossway wanted to sponsor us for the podcast, we'd be open to that. <laughs> but uh, if you're listening, Crossway. But if uh, if at any point, um, <clears throat> you know, we didn't have the support of the people who believe in what we're doing, we wouldn't exist. So we are a not-for-profit. We have every year, every each of the five years we've been in existence, we have grown. We have reached more people. This year, we've taken a quantum leap with our social media. Uh, we've expanded our team. We are reaching literally hundreds of thousands of people through social media each month. And uh, we've got tons and tons of listeners on the podcast that are new this year. And so uh, about once a year, you know, over the next couple of weeks, yes. we ask we ask people to support us. If you find our mission compelling to keep you informed without being conformed, consider making a year-end donation to support So We Speak so we can continue to get this content into more hands and more ears in 2024. So let's talk about this objection. Last time we did our first objection, and uh, that was on the concept of truth. And I think there's a real argument to be made about truth. And we're actually going to come back to that a little bit in this episode. Right. Science is, faith in science is, is a little bit of a, a term that's hard to define because there are so many different ways to conceive of this argument. So before we get to stating the case, stating the strongest version of this case, what I, I thought would be interesting is just to go back and give a little bit of a narrative on why we're even talking about this. Most people would trace the origin of this question back to Galileo and uh, the suppression of Galileo's research from the Catholic Church and you know pressure to recant. And that's mm -hmm. a bit of a, an anachronism. When you go back and read what was going on, you have Galileo, who is a person who was saying things that were at odds with what people believe, but was not doing so because he was a religious radical. He, he was doing right. this because he felt the impetus of his faith in God that would lead him to explore God's world. And we'll, we'll talk about that later in this episode. Most of what we talk about when we talk about faith and science, though, is not from the scientific revolution. It's not from the Enlightenment, although the trajectory was set there. Most of what we talk about and the arguments we hear and the things that we consider uh, between science and faith come from the new atheism. Now, what is the new atheism? So after 2001, you had the attacks on 9-11, you had a rising tide of people who were saying religion is dangerous. And it's not just the radicals, you know, that flew planes into the World Trade Centers. Really, anybody who lives totally devoted to an ideology, a religious ideology, could be dangerous. Instead, what we need is this common ground of rational investigation. We need people to basically subscribe to the dictates of science. Well, in this trend, you get 
people like Richard Dawkins who become household names almost overnight. I mean, it's funny to think about, you know, Richard Dawkins is not a young guy and he wasn't even a young guy in 2001. He had right. been plowing away in his post as the professor for the public understanding of science uh, for a long time before uh, the God delusion came out. And the same thing mm -hmm. with these others who, be, who, who came to be known as the four horsemen of, the, of atheism, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Richard Dawkins. But between 2001 and about 2006, they all wrote best-selling books. They all made their way into popular mainstream talk shows, TV, entertainment media. They all did high-profile debates, and they launched a new assault of arguments against Christianity. Dawkins in particular, Dennett maybe to a little bit lesser extent, were making their arguments from a scientific standpoint. Hitchens and Harris were maybe coming a little bit more from a philosophical or an ethical standpoint. But right. Dawkins especially became the leading voice to say, you cannot believe in science and believe in faith. In fact, one of the things that made these new atheists so persuasive to so many people is they weren't just bringing arguments, they were bringing rhetoric with them. They were powerful right. rhetorically. So you, you get Richard Dawkins, who isn't just arguing against Christianity, he's ridiculing Christianity. And he is making fun of people who believe in things like God or the flood or Abraham sacrificing his own son, saying these things are completely, they're not just wrong, they're ridiculous. This was this was big. And, and the way that they were able to inject some of these arguments into the popular consciousness is really the reason that we're having this conversation today. Most of the time, when you hear people talking about the difference between science and faith, they're talking about arguments from people like Richard Dawkins or these others, not right. from people like Bertrand Russell or some of the great atheists of 150 years ago. So this right. is a relatively new phenomenon. And if you want to dive into this, I, I want to point people to a podcast by Justin Brierley. He has a book coming out called The Rise and Fall of the New Atheist, or he, his book is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And it has a podcast that goes with it. And the first episode of the podcast is called The Rise and Fall of the New Atheism. And what ends up happening in the New Atheism is really kind of interesting. And, and he's following this thread over this over the series of these podcast episodes. The first thing that starts to happen, and this is going to lead us to our to our discussion about science and faith is more sophisticated atheists start to be ashamed of Richard Dawkins. That's, that's the first <laughs> thing that happens is you right. get people that are um, atheists for maybe a little bit deeper uh, reasons than Richard Dawkins. And they start to be embarrassed of Richard Dawkins way of arguing. So I, I have, uh, been in a course before, and I have assigned the God delusion before, not as a text in atheism, but as a text in all the things you shouldn't do when you're arguing with somebody, right? Be because it's just not a very well argued book. And there are a few interesting scientific uh, arguments in there. But what happened was it was rhetoric against rhetoric. And it took right. a while for Christians to catch up with this. If you if you mark the dates of some of the really influential responses to the to the atheists, they got a head start. You've got Dawkins and Dennett and Harris and Hitchens all putting out books. And the people that they're writing against and debating uh, initially are not 
impressive. This is not the Christian apologetics A team. But before long, you really start to get some heavy hitters involved. You get John Lennox from England. He's a Cambridge mathematician, apologist. You get Alistair McGrath, William Lane Craig, Michael Behe, Stephen Meyer. These guys come onto the scene, and before you know it, you realize this is a different caliber of group that we're dealing with. Part of it, too, is finally you get people that are as persuasive and rhetorically powerful as these new atheists. So I would say William Lane Craig is one of the preeminent Christian philosophers, but man, he is boring to listen to. You get Christopher Hitchens against William Lane Craig, and William Lane Craig may win in a technical debate, but Christopher Hitchens is going to win the crowd. Well, then all of a sudden you've got Doug Wilson debating Christopher Hitchens, who has as much verbal artillery as Christopher Hitchens right. does. And you've seen these things even out. And We'll probably come back at the end of the episode to talk about, I think, why the new atheism fizzled out. But that window of time before you got serious Christian engagement primed the last almost 20 years for these arguments of faith versus science. It's, it's like that quote that a lie can get halfway around the world before the tr truth puts on its shoes. Right. That, that was true with the new atheism. And, and the conversations we're having today, I think, are a consequence of uh, those books and those personalities and those arguments getting halfway around the world before really good apologetics got there as well. I agree. I think uh, the big difference between arguments that atheists were making against Christianity a hundred years ago and recent is you put your finger on it. These arguments are almost entirely rhetorical. And what I mean by that is there's not a lot of science behind this. Once you just wade through the clever sayings, and there's some very clever uh, sayings, there's some really good speaking there, very persuasive. But once you just step past that, you realize there's not much behind it. And I think that that doesn't have staying power once people start to point out that the emperor has no clothes. In other words, this argument has nothing behind it, but it's very clever and it sounds really good. And I think that's largely what has happened with the new atheism. Statistics would indicate that people aren't buying that, as persuasive as it may be. I read a book many years ago uh, called God is Back. It was written by two editors of The Economist magazine. So these are not people that are uh, necessarily Christian at all, but they took a look at globally at the statistics and they realized that the new atheists and uh, even before them had forecast that the world would become more secular. And it's true that the West has become more secular, but the world has become more religious. And that's what they showed looking at the data. And the data still shows that, that the world is actually becoming more religious. And so I would say if, if indeed you accepted that science and Christianity are not compatible, you would have to explain to me why a world that's becoming more scientifically savvy is also becoming more religious. And that's where I think that this whole science versus religion is a little bit of sleight of hand. I'm not sure that, and I would argue that Christianity and science are not at odds. It's something else that science is being used to prop up. So the way that we go about this discussion in, in these episodes is we're going to, we've done a little bit of uh, tilling the soil in the introduction. Let's make the strongest version of this argument. So science and faith are incompatible. Why would somebody believe that? Yeah, I think typically the when I 
talk to people who are struggling with this, they don't have an argument, they have an anecdote. So for example, it's, well, you know, science, the best science that we have would indicate that the earth is very old. And yet there are some people who read the Bible and say, you know, the earth is only a few thousand years old. How can I square that? Or I went through school and they told me that uh, evolution, Darwinian evolution, random chance is a proven theory. And yet Christianity says God created everything here. Most of the time when I talk to people, they have an, a problem around a specific issue, not science in general or Christianity in general. And I think the reason for that is when you have a rhetorical argument, what you want to do is pick the worst argument of your opponent and cast it in as bad a light as possible. And so that's what I think has been effective with some people is trying to reduce Christianity to a bunch of flat earthers uh, who hold ridiculous uh, ideas that can't possibly be squared with modern science. And it tends to be anecdotal, Cole, more than it tends to be have any particular reason behind it. Yeah, I, I think that gets to a really important point in this discussion is we're going to try and tailor the discussion to science, you know, belief in science and the deliverances of science. But that almost immediately has shortcomings in terms of this uh, dichotomy with faith, partially because I don't think there actually is a contradiction there. It's it's always something else that science is in the service of, as you, as you said. In fact, I wanted to bring up, there's a great book I've been meaning to review this for So We Speak for several months, but it's called Seven Types of Atheism by John Gray. John Gray is a British philosopher. He is an atheist. And he he points out something really interesting in the in the first chapter. He says, I'm going to examine seven kinds of atheism. The first of them, the so-called new atheism, contains little that is novel or interesting. After the first chapter, I will not refer to it again. Uh, he, he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a lot of respect for these guys, but what's interesting is the other six that he mentions are all involved in some way with science. But they have an underlying set of beliefs or assumptions that are actually at odds with Christianity, rather than the science itself. So let me just give you what he names here, and that'll flesh out a little bit of what you need to bring with you to a discussion about science and Christianity to actually disagree with Christianity. So he mm -hmm. says uh, the second one would be secular humanism, which is actually a hollowed out version of Christian belief, salvation through history. This is interesting. He right. actually only thinks one of these kinds of atheism is true atheism. Third, there's a kind of atheism that makes a religion from science, a category that includes evolutionary humanism, dialectic materialism, and contemporary transhumanism. This is the category we really want to deal with in this episode. Mm -hmm. Right. Fourth, modern political religions from Jacobinism through communism, Nazism, evangelical liberalism, which that's a fascinating chapter. I've got to write something on that. Fifth, uh -huh. there is the atheism of the God haters, such as the Marquis de Sade or Dostoevsky's fictional character, Ivan Karamazov. Sixth, mm -hmm. uh, the atheisms of George Santayana and Joseph Conrad, which reject the idea of a creator God without having any piety towards humanity. And then mm -hmm. last, there's the mystical atheism of Arthur Schopenhauer, the negative theology of Benedict Spinoza, 
all of which in different ways point to a God that transcends any human conception. I, I just read that to, to show there, there's actually a lot more to this question than just did the deliverances of science contradict certain tenets of the Christian faith. Right. What you run into in this science versus faith conversation, and I think the strongest version of this argument is, do you have an underlying assumption, an underlying set of beliefs that combined with science actually disagree with Christianity? So materialism would be the easiest one to point to. If you're right. a materialist, you can do science. I think, as we'll come back to later, as a materialist, you can't explain why you can do science, but as a materialist, you can do science, and you can be at odds with Christianity, because Christianity is, above all else, a belief that there is more than just material in the universe. Um, so, so when we're making the strongest version of this argument, we have to get from science, which is actually a tool, to a, a more proper worldview, like the ones that John Gray lists. And certain worldviews then are going to utilize science to make powerful arguments against Christianity. So you, so you might have heard right. people say, well, I can't believe in Christianity because there is no evidence of Christianity. Where is the evidence? This was Bertrand Russell's famous response when somebody said, well, Bertrand, you know, what are you going to tell God if you die and go to heaven or you, you stand before the judgment? And uh, it turns out you were wrong. And he said, I'll throw up my hands before God and say, there just wasn't enough evidence. Okay, this, this is not really a scientific statement. This is a right. philosophical statement of somebody who has limited the meaning and truth in the universe to what can be delivered through scientific processes. And what I think is happening with the new atheists is there are very, very few of those people that actually exist. There are very, right. very right. few people that truly believe the only things you can know are what you can test and demonstrate scientifically, partially because the scientific method cannot be proven scientifically. Um, so right. you've got a gaping hole in your theory of knowledge right from the get-go. Uh, you know, an another thing that you hear people say a lot of times is, well, you know, this is kind of God of the gaps. God is not falsifiable. It it's, it's just, yeah. it's fideism. You just believe in it by sheer uh, will to believe in something. Again, that's not a problem with science. Science actually wouldn't tell you that. That is saying the only thing you can know is what you can know through science because scientific propositions are falsifiable. Maybe we're talking about two different kinds of knowledge here. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. I think that to me is probably the most compelling argument from pure science and Christianity, but it's a little bit like apples and oranges. But uh, to take this seriously, I think most religions are not falsifiable. And what you and I mean by that is, if it were not true, could you could you demonstrate that? And and the point that you would be making about, say, Buddhism, for example, I'm just picking on that is, well, you say that's true, but there's no way for us to demonstrate. It's not that I have to prove it's true. But even if it were false, there's no way to prove that it's false. In scientific theory, for something to be accepted as true and not just as a theory, one needs to demonstrate that it's correct or one needs to demonstrate that it is not. If you can't do one of those two things, it's not a scientific statement. Now, Christianity, I'm going to argue, fits better into the science because Christianity is based on a historical event. 
And that is demonstrable. It is historically provable that the things that happened, the events that happened really did happen. But I would agree that if you want to take that apple of science and the orange of religion, you would have to say that science can't countenance most religions. On the other hand, science cannot count countenance uh, evolutionary humanism, as you pointed out. That is a view of life, and most of its tenets are not falsifiable either. I think you hit on the, the crux of this is that science is a tool. It's a very good tool. And that's why there are so many Christians who are such excellent scientists, is you can be Christian and use the tool of science. I think the tool of science is being used by some other ideologies against Christianity. But I don't think there's anything in science per se that would argue with Christianity. I'm going to give you an example. I want you to tell me what you think about this. So here's, here's what I would say is an analogy of science trying to argue with Christianity. So you've got a mechanic and you take your car in and he starts working on your car. And you start talking to him about jet engines. And he's, and you know, if he were to say, there's no such thing as a jet engine, because look here, I'm looking at a car engine. This isn't a jet engine. There's no such thing. Well, that would be pretty absurd. What would he say to you? He would say to you, well, actually, yeah, there may very well be jet engines, but I don't really know much about them. I do. I do car engines. Well, that's science and God. Science says, you know, I know my area, but honestly, I, I can't speak to something else. And that's what I mean when I say science is a great tool, but it's not a very good master because it, it can't get you to the ultimate answers in life. And I think if you put science in its proper place, it's a great servant. What are your thoughts on that analogy? Well, at first I thought you were going a different direction with that. You you have a mechanic there and you start talking about great ideas. And I thought, well, this is just the plot of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. <laughs> that's true. But uh, I think that's right. These are two different spheres, but they're not completely separate. Actually, one is right. a bigger container than the other one. So I, I do think we run into trouble sometimes when we say religion deals with some things, science deals with other things and never the twain shall meet. That's actually not right. quite right because right. of what you said. Christianity makes scientifically verifiable claims. It's just right. bigger. It's a broader category. That's why you have to compare it to something like political uh, religion, like, like John Gray's talk about, or materialism or secular humanism, something that is in itself a religion or something that's the same size as Christianity. Um, this is the philosophical case underlying this science versus faith in which we're kind of untying it and saying, turns out there actually isn't a problem here. I, I want to continue though to make the strongest version of this case because that's only part of what people talk about when they talk about faith and science. The other thing would be specific deliverances of science that contradict mm -hmm. specific claims of Christianity that are both in the same category. Right, And this is where you have to say, are they incompatible? No, they're not. Is something that science says or something that people believe uh, in a consensus at odds with certain things that Christians believe? That's, that's where we usually get down to the difference. Right. So, for example, science, uh, you know, pe people that do 
geology and people that look at archaeology don't believe that there was a worldwide flood. Christians believe there was a worldwide flood. Therefore, we have a contradiction. Okay, so, so now we're in the world of not our science and Christianity at odds because there are Christians who don't believe in the flood. So that would not be a knockdown argument to say Christianity can't be true because there's no flood. What it is doing is saying, hey, for everybody that does believe that the Bible teaches there is a flood, we have this rival version of truth over here that says there was no worldwide flood. If you can't trust that, maybe you can't trust anything. That's how you would kind of make that argument. Mm-hmm. I think the most compelling one of those arguments, or probably the thorniest up until a couple of years ago, was an argument from genetics, which is the population of human beings on the planet has never been less than about 10,000 to produce mm-hmm. the genetic code that we have today. Stephen Meyer, who has written a couple of great books himself, and we've talked about his most recent book, Return of the God Hypothesis, in three parts uh, earlier this year on the podcast. He edited a book called Theistic Evolution. And in that book, there are philosophical arguments, there are scientific arguments, and two of the essays in that book are research that had not been previously published about this genetic question. Could there really have been two individuals from whom Mm -hmm. all the genetic material we have now in the human race has come? They argue, yes, I'm I'm not actually in a position to be able to evaluate those arguments. Um, But I think it's interesting that they're willing to make that argument. And, you know, there's peer review and all that. And that would be an interesting thing to go into, especially if you know a thing or two about genetics. That level of argument, I think, is where people are usually coming from. The Bible says there were two people. Genetics, modern genetics, says there were never less than 10,000. Christianity can't be true. Again, that's a non sequitur, but that's the way the argument goes. And we could list a bunch of these. There's no evidence outside the Bible for any character before Saul or whatever you want to make the argument, whether it's hard sciences, archaeology, sociology, there's a lot of these arguments that can be made. And I think when we talk about the difference between faith and science, a lot of times we're talking about these arguments. I think so, too. Probably the biggest one I see, and this is really easy uh, to lay these out to me, and, and that is evolution. But let me break that down, and because you basically would say, well, science has proved evolution. Not true. And Christians don't believe in evolution. Not also not entirely true. So let's start for a minute. I believe in microevolution because science has demonstrated that through observation. In other words, do beaks change? Yeah, apparently so. The Galapagos finches, uh, beaks did change a little bit. Uh, and you, you see that with viruses. You see it with a lot of other things. You see what's called microevolution. And all that means is, is that viruses can develop resistance, that you can have certain mutations that turn out to be favorable for them. I don't think we understand that mechanism completely. But that is scientifically demonstrable. And it is of no challenge whatsoever to Christian faith. Oh, now we're we're the theory. You know, we all became yeah. experts in this during COVID nineteen. We're all epidemiologists we, now. We know we, we know the different variations of of COVID and their That's mutations. That's exactly and, right. And we know it's at the moment anyway. It's all about proteins and where they spike attach. proteins. Yeah, exactly. We're all experts on it's spike ex- proteins now. <laughs> That's true. In fact, actually, COVID. I'm going to argue in just a minute that COVID turned this argument on its head. But basically, uh, then the theory of evolution moves on and says, actually, though, you can go further than that, and you can demonstrate that random mutations, meaning they just 
sort of happened accidentally over millions of years, ended up explaining how you get from a, a chimpanzee to a Cro-Magnon man to a Neanderthal man to modern humans, etc. You can go macroevolution. You can get everything that ever existed by this process. No one actually believes that. I would argue most biologists don't actually believe that. They may believe that evolutionary process is important, but no one believes that this all happened by chance. And and so I would say that where science has demonstrated something, it's not at conflict with Christianity. Where you get into problems is trying to argue that Christians say that, that this is guided evolution, that God created everything, uh, can't be true because we know it all happened by random processes. Therein lies the real issue. Science has not demonstrated and cannot and will not demonstrate that this is a random process. And so you end up getting that used against Christianity. Christianity and evolution, for what science can demonstrate, are absolutely in sync. In fact, Christianity may well add to the evolutionary argument and bring a designer into this, which I think most sane people believe. They don't want to admit it, but they believe it. Now, let me jump back into what you said a minute ago, just to clarify this. So are you making the argument basically that the pop version of, of evolutionary theory, which is, you know, all this, the blind watchmaker, all this happened by chance, and um, there's no principle guiding it, no God involved, it, everything came from nothing. Are you saying, are you debunking that as what most people who would would believe in scientific evolution of some kind, we're talking anything from a geneticist to a biologist to a physicist? actually believes that what you're saying we say nobody believes that that's that's the pop version you know that's that's evolution in the movies versus the nitty-gritty of what people who are doing evolutionary work actually believe yes that's what that's a contention that i'm making is that the standard theoretical model of darwinian evolution claims that natural selection and random mutation are sufficient mechanisms to explain all of life. My argument is, as time goes on, fewer and fewer scientists actually believe that to be true. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think when we were doing the, I uh, can't remember if it was the God hypothesis, it might have actually been the two-part that we did on faith and science a couple of years ago. We did a section, uh, Ben Williams and Carson Fakes were on that podcast, and and we did a section on narratives that have outlived their lifespan. Right. And yeah, there's several of these arguments that they may have been the prevailing argument at some point. They're definitely not the prevailing argument today, but they Mm -hmm. still have legs in the kind of pop understanding of evolution. I think you're right to point that out is there are some things that people talk about with evolution that even evolutionists don't believe in anymore. So that that's an interesting trend as well. I think on the flip side, there's a Christian version of like, Hey, if you don't like the science, just wait 20 minutes and it'll change. I think, I think that's maybe a little simplistic, uh, mm-hmm. but but things have shifted in some ways. And uh, well, good science, good science does change. As you continue to investigate an experiment, uh, you you make hypotheses and then you knock them down. And so I, I don't expect that's why we don't live our lives based on whatever the current scientific hypothesis is, uh, because good science will probably debunk it and come up with a better hypothesis. And that is the scientific process. And that's why science is a good tool, but it's not the particularly good uh, thing to guide your life. 
And right. this is where I want to bring in COVID. I really think a lot of this turned around during COVID because I'm not talking conspiracy theories now. As data comes out about what people were told, that the science says this and the science says that, it's just obvious now that even the people saying that knew that the science, the data that they had, didn't support some of the things they told people. And uh, again, that's, that's not an anti-science statement. That's simply saying that uh, a lot of things that the early data showed, and then some things that were just added into that, turned out not to be true at all. Now, does that mean that the science was wrong? No, let science do its job. It makes a hypothesis, the data comes in, that's not correct, let's make a new hypothesis. That's good science. But what happened in COVID for people wielding science like a weapon, very much, very much like uh, your friend uh, is going to argue that religion wielded religion like a weapon in the past. You know, that's that's you know, that's basically what Dawkins said. Religion is just using God to create trouble in the world. Well, during COVID, I think we saw science getting badly misused, and I think it's uh, caused a lot of people to lose their quote faith in science. And uh, I think that's a healthy thing because I think science, again, is a good tool, but it it cannot be. I think COVID showed us that you, you can't put that in the hands of people and give them that much power and say, the science says this, therefore thou shalt do this. I think people got burned on that. I think people got very tired of uh, having people say, trust the science when mm -hmm. they were starting to see in real time, the difference between scientific data and the interpretation of data. And then even on, right. on top of the interpretation of data, the uh, kind of public warnings about what to do with the interpretations of the data. And the fact that those all seem to go one way, you know, they all seem to align up with certain ideologies, uh, no matter what the ideology was, they could find an interpretation of data to suit their ideology. Well, that, that kind of unmasks the whole thing. And I, and I do think that de the debate over faith and science is different post-COVID. It's different post-progressive uh, revolution over the last 10 years in America. You have right. certain ideologies that are completely anti-science that, you know, just until about 10 years ago were allied with people like Richard Dawkins. Now Richard Dawkins is getting canceled, you know? And so right. uh, you, you start to see that actually it's a more complicated picture than this. And science is really not uh, one side versus the other. Like I said, it's a, it's a tool. I, what I keep coming back to before we uh, wrap here with a couple of responses is Ian McGilchrist is, I think, one of the most brilliant people alive. I, I think he's just one of those people that his, his brain operates on a different uh -huh. level than others. And I know you've been reading The Matter with Things, which is his most recent book. It's a two volume, just behemoth. His mm -hmm. book before that is called The Master and His Emissary. And the argument of that book is basically, it, it's about neuroscience and the difference between the brain hemispheres. But if you want to put it on a more practical level, the, the argument that he makes there is you have the left brain, which is in, in a lot of ways scientific. It is a tool. It is a way to manipulate things. It is narrowly focused. And it has overtaken the way that we see the world. Whereas in other eras, the right brain, which is a much more kind of comprehensive worldview, gut-driven, intuitive, imaginative uh, synthesis of the world, uh, 
uh, was the way that was the way that people viewed things. When you have that as your overarching picture, and you zoom in with kind of a scientific mindset and take things apart, and then you zoom back out and refocus uh, based on what mm-hmm. you've learned, that's actually the best way to construe knowledge. And his, his argument is we have basically forgotten that 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 that. Uh, that hemisphere is a tool that's supposed to be used in concert with a broader vision of knowledge. Right. That's essentially what we're talking about here in this conversation mm-hmm. as well, is if you zoom in too far and pretend like the only things that exist are science, as opposed to science is supposed to help us understand the world that we that we perceive, you can get really off base. I, I do want to make two specific rejoinders to some of these arguments. The first one would be on the incompatibility of specific statements of science with specific statements of religion. I do want to say from the get-go, disproving something like the flood is different than saying science and religion are incompatible uh, for a lot of different reasons. But secondly, there are a lot of really good arguments that are playing by scientific rules in the last five years even, that simply weren't there 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it takes an argument like that to be able to spell out what you really believe. And so again, I'd point people, a great start for this is Stephen Meyer's work, Michael Behe's work, they're very different. But uh, you know, Mike Meyer's argument in the, in the book, Theistic Evolution, is basically biological processes cannot create new proteins or new biological processes. This is a huge problem for biologists studying uh, the way that life right. works. So, so you get on that level. I've mentioned the genetic level. Behe, again, is the mechanics of certain cells don't make sense in an evolutionary framework because they're ir- irreducibly complex. So, so you're getting some technical arguments. And so I would say if you have a technical question, go find the technical arguments. If you have a philosophical question, though, make sure you're paying attention to the philosophical arguments. I think the greatest philosophical treatment of faith and science is Alvin Plantinga's book, Where the Conflict Really Lies. And the argument of this book is really simple. If you look at the foundational pieces you would need in your worldview to believe in something like science, which would be things like the world is intelligible. The human mind can understand what is out there in the world through sense experience. The mind can order things in a repeatable, rational way that it perceives from the outside world, that tomorrow is going to be close enough to today in repeatability that we can test things over time. All of these Mm -hmm. foundations of what you need to do science, it's much more likely that that world exists because there is a creator who made it than that there isn't a creator who made it. And so by the end of the book, what he argues is the foundations for science are much more in conflict with an atheistic, materialistic worldview right. than they are with a Christian worldview. And I would I even agree. go one step further than planting a dozen in that book, and I would say the foundations you have as a Christian in your worldview should make you curious enough and capable enough to do really good science. I agree with that completely. I think most of the time people use science to as a weapon against Christianity, but in I think they're very compatible. I just think Christians ought to be leading scientists because we care so much about God's universe. When you look at the fine-tuning argument, 
that's not science arguing with Christianity. When you look at evidence of the flood or evidence against, and I say evidence because there's nothing proved one way or the other on scientific side, science isn't trying to poke Christianity. Science is just a tool that's going about its business. And there are many, many, many times when it says, wow, this really lines up with a Christian worldview. And there are occasionally times it says this current theory doesn't seem to. Well, let's give it some time and see. In other words, science in and of itself, it really doesn't have an issue with Christianity. It's just going about its business. Uh, but sometimes it's wielded as a tool against Christianity. And I think we ought to just relax about that because I don't think those arguments are going to get much traction in the long run. But my final statement is a little off track. I, I want to introduce you to one of my favorite authors on this subject. He is not a Christian. Uh, he's not even a good Jew. He's a secular Jew. His name is David Berlinski. And David Berlinski has better credentials than anyone we have just talked about. I mean, David Berlinski is very well credentialed in a variety of areas, and he is probably the wittiest writer. And so I'm just going to do you a favor and say, if you would like to pick up a book he wrote called The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions, The Devil's Delusion by David Berlinski, you will not find a more intelligent, wittier, complete taking apart of some of the rhetoric of the new atheists. And I, I just think you'll find that to be a joy to read and you'll go, wow, he's, he's exactly right. This rhetoric doesn't have anything behind it. And so it's, it's something I've taken a lot of joy in because it's just clear thinking. And once you have engaged the new atheists, you will be hungry for some clear thinking. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.